in Scripture, Jesus has entered Jerusalem uh, on the Sunday prior to Passover week. Though more importantly, it's the Sunday prior to his death and resurrection. But this week, Jerusalem is packed with Jews who will be worshiping God at the temple. Jesus, up to this week, has kept his identity secret. But as he enters Jerusalem, he chooses to reveal his identity. He has come to bring the kingdom of God to a false kingdom, and he means business. He enters the city, as Taylor preached on a few weeks ago, most likely telling people to go before him and stirring up a crowd uh, to kind of announce his arrival into Jerusalem. Then he yells at a tree. He walks into the temple, a place held sacred by the people and religious leaders, and he flips over the tables of the money changers there. The next day, the tree he yelled at is dead, uh, and uh, he, uh, he is then uh, questioned on his authority by the highest religious authority in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, and he tells a parable about them that really upsets them. After he's questioned again, but this time by the Pharisees and the Herodians, about taxes. And as far as we know to this point, it's still Monday. Jesus is building up and stirring up trouble, but he has a purpose behind all of it. Namely, he's prepping a path to the cross. Now, I brushed through all that quickly, but it is very important, and God has a lot to say in this section of Scripture, so I encourage you to go back and listen to what the Spirit had to say through Taylor if you're confused or if you just want to hear and listen to it again. But this is where we pick up today. Jesus has been approached by the Pharisees and the Herodians and in a way thwarted their plans to try and trap him in a question about taxes, and next up to bat are the Sadducees. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be, since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord for us today. So now it's the Sadducees' turn to approach Jesus. The Sadducees were another sect of Jewish priests, similar in idea to the Pharisees, though they differed in their beliefs. You can almost think of them as another denomination of Jews. The Sadducees accepted the written Torah as God's law, but they did not accept the oral Torah as the Pharisees did. The written Torah consisted of those first five books written by Moses. The oral Torah was laws and statutes that were claimed to have been written around the same time as the written Torah, but, as the name suggests, were not written down and recorded. Along with only accepting the written Torah, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, as noted in verse 18. 
There is to debate as to whether they believed in anything after death. Some say that they might have believed the soul went to Sheol, and others say that they didn't believe the soul was immortal at all. But whatever the case was, they definitely did not believe in the bodily resurrection after death. This is confirmed in other parts of the Bible as well. Um, in fact, Paul uses this as a distraction uh, when the Pharisees and Sadducees have him cornered, and he turns them against each other and, and uh, brings it up so that they'll bicker with one another when they're trying to uh, question him. The Sadducees come to, a, to Jesus with a question, and like those before them, their intent is not to seek an actual answer, but to trap Jesus. Now, I'm sure we've all wondered some outlandish questions. At my work, we've developed a question that we now ask every newcomer. Now, bear with me, this is going to sound really silly, but keep in mind that my uh, team at my office is pretty young, so we have some uh, silly conversations that lead to strange places. The question is, would you take $50 billion if, for the rest of your life, you had to be called Buttface? No nicknames, no way around it. Anytime someone wanted to say your name, it had to come out as that. So far, I'm the only one who has held out, saying that I wouldn't do it. I just can't think of telling my wife I love her and hearing I love you butt face back. I also think if my coworkers really thought about the ramifications of taking that name, they would change their mind. Now, that is quite a goofy question, but we do have more serious questions that we ask. One that I thought of was, would God forgive you for denouncing Christianity if it saved a lot of people? Many of these questions we wrestle with in our lives, but we'll never come to a conclusion because they're so hypothetical that they're unlikely to happen. The Sadducees' question is much like this, a hypothetical one with theological impact. It drew upon a law written in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, which says, When brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. Now, this may sound strange to us, because a brother-in-law marrying his sister-in-law after his brother dies uh, sounds quite fishy. Um, but we must understand that in the time of the Israelites, family lines meant everything. The purpose of this law was to preserve the family line of the brother who died. In fact, it was so important that if the brother said that he did not want to marry the woman, the woman could bring him to the elders and he would have to stand before them. If he continued to say he didn't want to marry her, she would approach him, take off his sandal, spit in his face, and his name in Israel would forever be changed to the house of the man whose sandal was removed. Familiar lines were so important that if the brother decided not to carry out his dead brother's names, he would carry the shame in his own name for the rest of his life. It's important to note as well here that the law was, was, was there to protect the woman who, once her husband died without leaving offspring, would be rendered defenseless in this culture and would have very little purpose. This was a law set in place by God to look out for the marginalized. And there were actually similar laws set forth by the Greeks and other ancient cultures. So it's not just a, a weird law that, the, that God made up um, that the Israelites were the only ones who were following. And I, so I think the Sadducees' question is on par with these, these hypotheticals such as, like the butt-face question. It's a little outlandish. I started to wonder when I read why they chose seven brothers. 
The same question could have been asked with two or three, but why choose seven? Some commentators think that this number is so ludicrous that it must have been a common joke used by the Sadducees to poke fun at the resurrection. Nevertheless, the Sadducees base their question in Scripture and ask in the resurrection whose wife would she be? We, of course, know this is a trap because we know that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't care what Jesus has to say because they already have concluded that he's wrong. And they probably want him to say something that will polarize the crowd against him. Jesus, however, decides not to play games this time. You see, the last two interactions he has had with religious leaders, he hasn't addressed them head on. He dodged one question by turning it back to them. And when they couldn't answer, he, he said uh, that he would not give them an answer. And he answered the other question regarding taxes by saying that they can pay their taxes and that they can, they can pay to God what is God's. But this time, Jesus doesn't pull the punches. He starts by telling the Sadducees that they are wrong. And the reason they are wrong is that they don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. Now, this is quite the claim. I want you to imagine uh, with me this morning that LeBron James walked into this room and uh, I looked at him from here and said, you don't know basketball. It would be ridiculous, especially if you've ever seen me shoot a basketball. <laughs> That's what Jesus is doing here. He's looking at the people who are the experts in the scriptures and telling them they know nothing. Jesus is not concerned with upsetting the Sadducees. He is concerned with the truth. After insulting them, he goes on to answer the question spoken by the Sadducees. This leads to another preaching tip. Uh, if you are asked to preach on a passage, be sure to read that passage before you accept. I told Taylor I'd be happy to preach and then found out that I was preaching on uh, about marriage in heaven uh, and just some very confusing things. And I'll be honest with you, when I talked to Taylor about this, um, I, I talked with Taylor about this, and, and I'm honestly not even sure where I land on the interpretation of what Jesus means exactly when he answers the Sadducees here. But what he says is, for when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, this brings up so many questions for myself, like how was Jesus so sure in these supernatural things if he was dependent on his human nature while he lived on earth? What was he referencing when he spoke about angels not marrying or being given in marriage? I think these things are great to explore on our own, but I think Jesus is making a more important point in this interaction. He follows his... He follows his answer right into addressing the unspoken issue the Sadducees have, their disbelief in the resurrection. Jesus says in verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus quotes Exodus here, and as a reminder, Exodus is part of the written Torah, uh, which is part of the law that the Sadducees accept as God's law. They accept the written Torah, they don't accept the oral Torah. Jesus is intentional about choosing this passage to quote from because he knows he needs to meet the Sadducees where they are. He pulls from what they hold to be true. While I was studying, I assumed like I'm sure many do, that Jesus' proof of the resurrection from this passage is in the tense of the to-be verb that he uses here, quoting in Exodus. Namely, that God says, I am the God, not I was the God of Abraham. I came across an interesting point in a commentary that said this, 
It is sometimes claimed that Jesus makes this point from the tense of the verb, I am the God of Abraham, rather than I was the God of Abraham. This argument is not quite correct, since there is no verb in either the Hebrew or the Greek text. The verb to be is only implied, so there is no present or past tense indicated. Jesus' point is not made through the tense of the non-existent verb, but through his affirmation of the continuing covenantal relationship between God and the patriarchs. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob confirms the covenantal faithfulness of God whose promises can be relied on and whose relationship with his people endures forever. I find it very interesting that Jesus is grounding this in the fact that God's covenant with the patriarch was to be their God. And so if he stated, I am their God, then it must be that he's still upholding that covenant and therefore they are still alive. All that to say, Jesus' point is this, that he knows the deeper issue and he is correcting it with truth. This is something that must be done in our lives as well in order for us to truly believe in God. At some point, we all face the truth that Jesus lays bare and are given the opportunity to respond. Jesus has a few more days until his death, but this is where he leaves the conversation with the Sadducees. So what does this mean to us? Well, as I read over this, these are the things the Spirit brought to my attention. Firstly, Scripture memorization is not the same thing as knowing God's Word. Many of us have grown up in the heart of the Bible Belt and been taught since a very young age about Samson, King David, Noah, Jonah, and the rest. We grow into our teen years thinking we know the Bible so well, and every time we come back to it, it begins to feel less and less fruitful because we already know what the pages will hold. This, of course, is foolishness, and Jesus points that out here. The Sadducees would have known the Scripture better than any of us, but that did not mean they knew God, and even their knowledge of Scripture was limited because of their hardness of heart. I'm more and more convinced that the people who grow up in the church many times look most like the Pharisees and Sadducees in the Bible. I say look most as in their struggles and fights with God are similar to those that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had with Jesus. Many of you know that Serena and I have made a significant life change recently. Uh, we're going to be moving to Colorado in the next couple of weeks, and we got the chance to go visit the city where we'll be living. While we were there, we went to church, and while we were worshiping, I just was struck by the stark contrast uh, that I felt there compared to here of the darkness outside of that little church and the light that was being portrayed by the gospel in the church. So here in the South, our struggle is that there are Pharisees and Sadducees all over who think that they are totally fine and have their get-out-of-hell-free card. But we must not let a casual relationship with God convince us that we are good. For us to truly know God, we need to spend quality and intimate time with Him. Not time where we do all the talking and expect him to listen, but time where we develop a relationship with God. If you have any relationships, marriage, friendships, parenting, co-workers, etc., you know the work required to keep those relationships going. I had quite a few friends in high school, and many of them I don't talk to, uh, or I don't consider friends anymore because I haven't talked to them since high school. I'm constantly amazed at how much time goes on between when I make contact with a close friend. We need to be making even greater effort to work on our relationship with God than we do working on our relationship with other humans. 
And I can hear the excuses already because I tell them to myself. I'm too busy, or God understands that I'll get to it eventually, or this is just a season I need to get through, and then I'll start diving back into God's Word. Trust me, I've been telling myself some of these excuses since COVID, and since my wife and I welcomed our son into the world. But these are foolish excuses. If we are too busy for God, then we need to look at our lives and cut something out. If we think God is understanding, while I'm sure He is merciful and forgiving, I can't imagine that God doesn't long for us, His people, to intimately seek Him out. And if we think we're just in a season, well, how long have you been telling yourself that? A week? A month? A few years? I don't want to neglect the difficulties of life, but I do want us to understand the severity with which we should take our relationship with God. There is truly nothing that matters more. The second thing that was brought to my attention as I was reading this was that in order to know God, we need community. The Sadducees were in an echo chamber. They discussed the resurrection issue with people who agreed with them, and they probably rarely got into an argument unless there was another Sadducee around to back them up. But this was a problem. If you're on any form of social media then, and ever look through any of the comments of almost any post, then you know what an echo chamber looks like. God formed the church out of people made in His image who all have different experiences, different backgrounds, different viewpoints, and we need these differences. We need to be having conversations about Scripture with other people. Why? So we can hear other opinions regarding the same Scripture that we are looking at and reading and test our own opinions with fellow believers. Here at King's Cross, we have discipleship groups that go on throughout the week. Those groups are where you bring the weird thoughts and questions that pop into your head while you're reading the Bible. And they are places where you don't get judged when you talk about those things. Our discipleship groups should be safe places where people feel comfortable verbalizing doubts that they have. Listen, there's a lot in the Bible that upon reading can make people go, whoa, what kind of religion am I getting into? We have to work through these things with fellow believers and not shy away from them because they're too hard for us to emotionally think about. I think we also need to be listening and interacting and discussing religious things with people who don't even share Christian beliefs. Why? Well, again, I think varying perspectives are helpful as long as we test them against Scripture and, and with the Spirit. But it will also help us as we try to witness to others about the truth of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and the resurrection. When we find ourselves in echo chambers, we find that we can easily hate the same ideas that other people around us hate. We might find it's easy to dislike a certain people group with a different opinion because we've heard and read a thousand posts uh, and reasons as to why their opinion is invalid. We need soft hearts. Most of the interactions Jesus has are not him calling out people as being wrong, though this one is, but Jesus doesn't tell us to hate a certain group of people because of their ideas or beliefs. Jesus commands us to love others. And yes, sometimes we have to speak truth and we have to combat lies, but we do it in a loving way, looking out for the image bearer that is sitting across the table from us. So ask yourself, do I have friends that aren't Christians? And do I have conversations with them that involve my beliefs and their beliefs? It can be scary, uh, and it can be a scary conversation to embark on. But I have found that if you approach it with a humble attitude that is willing to listen, most people actually enjoy talking about it. Community, both Christian and non-Christian, 
is very important. God did not make us to be people who can exist without other human interaction. He created us to be one church, submitting to the Lordship of Christ, no matter how we interpret the end times or baptism or predestination. He wants us to be united. The final thing and third thing that was brought to my attention as I was reading through this is that doctrine matters. We live in a time and place where truth is more and more being taught as something that is subjective or something that just ultimately doesn't really matter. You have your truth and I have mine and we can both live them out as long as we don't hurt anybody, everything's good. As Christians, we know there is one truth, not some subjective idea that floats out in the ether, but an objective, defined, finite truth. I can imagine if Jesus said this today in a public setting, some people would think, why does this matter? Why not just let them go on believing the resurrection doesn't exist? Jesus understands the severity of this issue. You see, within Christianity, there are things we disagree on, but there are things we all must hold as truth and be united under. The Sadducees didn't know this, but the most important resurrection would be taking place just a few days later, and it would be brought about by their careful planning with other religious leaders. Maybe Jesus was preparing them for the stories that would come of a Jewish teacher who had been crucified and whose tomb was later found empty. Or maybe Jesus wanted to clarify in a public setting the truth about the resurrection so that the bystanders would know that the Sadducees were wrong. Whatever his point was then, this rings true today. We must believe in the resurrection if we are to believe in what Christ has done for us. The issue of the resurrection is why Jesus told the Sadducees that they did not know the scriptures or the power of God. In order to be a Christian, we must know the scriptures and the power of God. This is a journey. You don't have to know every doctrine and every little detail of the Christian belief system to become a Christian. There are true believing Christians out there who haven't yet worked out where they think exactly we lie in the end times or how exactly justification works through Jesus' death, but they are nonetheless saved by grace through faith. Christianity is a lifelong pursuit to know God and reflect His character in your life. It's a lifelong commitment that through ups and downs, you will trust God and who He has revealed Himself to be. There are things in life that I don't enjoy and appreciate as much as other people, and one that specifically comes to mind is sports. I have very little investment in any sport, but when I listen to Austin Groves talk about the Kansas City Chiefs, I get excited. Austin has spent hours devoted to knowing the ins and outs of this team. And you can see the joy he gets out of it when he talks about it. As we study and learn doctrine and theology, we will find joy in it. It'll be hard, but we'll come to appreciate the intricacies of Scripture and how God interacts with humanity through history. We will stop viewing the Psalms as mere poems and start seeing them as rich passages that contain deep truths. The more we pour into learning who God is, the more we will find joy in Him. I struggle with focusing on trying to please people more than focusing on trying to please God. And my inner Sadducee was very present as I wrote this sermon because I wanted to find some deep revelation to bring to you this morning. I wanted all of you to go, wow, this guy needs to preach every week. And Taylor rightly helped me shift that mindset by reminding me that this is God's time to shine. 
And sometimes God shines through a simple message. So let's not waste our time checking meaningless boxes of religion without an intimate investment. But let us dive headfirst into the ocean that is the knowledge of God and be completely submerged in who He reveals Himself to be. If you're here this morning and you haven't committed to pursuing a relationship with God, and if this process of finding joy in God sounds intriguing to you, well, we are here to help and talk to you about that. Uh, We want to talk about what it means to be a Christian. So you can talk to myself, Taylor, Clint, or honestly, probably the person who's just sitting next to you, and I'm sure that they'd love to help you. If you're here and you have committed your life to the pursuit and the intimate knowledge and relationship with God, then the word for you this morning is quite simple. Keep on pursuing the knowledge of the Scriptures and the power of God.